I'm Dan Heath, and this is Choiceology. It's the late 16th century. Pope Clement VII has brought together several priests to start the secret process of canonization for the late Lawrence Justinian, a bishop from Venice. Basically, they're planning to make him a saint. The priests, they fully support sainthood for Justinian. He was a beloved figure, a man who was born into nobility but gave up a life of wealth and privilege to serve the church. But there's an obstacle to sainthood. Pope Clement's predecessor, Leo X, didn't want this process to be hasty. He didn't want it to be automatic. Becoming a saint should be a big deal, after all. So he assigned a priest to argue against every candidate for sainthood. That priest would dig into their background and try to poke holes in their candidacy. That role came to be known as the devil's advocate. No joke, that's the origin of the term. So before Lawrence Justinian can become a full-blown saint, he first has to get past the devil's advocate. Why would the church do this? Well, they were afraid of something, a bias, one that affects all of us in our decisions. In this episode, you'll see why a devil's advocate is helpful in keeping this bias in check, because the stakes are high, whether you're choosing a saint or convicting a sinner. This is Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. It's a show that reveals hidden psychological traps that affect the way you view everything, from the saints on the chapel ceiling, to the ups and downs of the stock market, to the horoscopes and your Sunday paper. And we don't just reveal these traps, we try to give you practical tips to minimize their impact so you can avoid expensive mistakes. We'll check back in with Lawrence Justinian, our saint-in-waiting, in just a bit. But right now, a crime, an investigation, and a series of decisions that will change one man's life forever. Dayton, Ohio, 1988. A number of kidnappings and sexual assaults has the community on edge. The perpetrator is still at large. Here's how the victims described their attacker. He had reddish-brown hair. He wore a medallion around his neck. He had no chest hair. There were acne scars along his jawline. He had a tan. He was a smoker. Now I want to introduce you to Dean. My name is Dean Gillespie from Fairborn, Ohio. Dean was picked up for the crime. And how does he match up with that description? Well, let's see. Does he have reddish-brown hair? No. At the time of the crime, Dean was 23, but he was going prematurely gray. How about the medallion and the bare chest? Dean had a hairy chest and was medallion-free. Was he tan? Nope. He was so fair-skinned that he didn't tan, he burned. Acne scars along the jawline? None at all. And as for being a smoker? No. He hated smoking. In fact, he had a no-smoking sign in his truck. How in the world could Dean Gillespie be fingered for this crime when he bore absolutely no resemblance to the description of the perpetrator? Let's dig into the story. 
and the way it unfolds is like a slow-motion horror movie. Twin sisters had been abducted from the parking lot of the Dayton Mall and brutally assaulted. But when that crime happened, Dean Gillespie was out of town. Out of the whole state, actually, on a camping trip. Dean worked in security at a nearby General Motors plant. A year after the crime, the chief of security, who was Dean's boss at the plant, provided an employee ID card of Dean to the detectives working on the case. He claimed that the photo resembled the composite sketch of the attacker that had been hanging in the plant lunchroom. Why would the security chief do that? Dean said they never did get along. Never did get along from day one. You know, we found out later that, that you know, my dad got me the job at General Motors. He knew all the right people, and um, we didn't know at the time. You know, this guy had another buddy. He wanted to get the job. You know, so he's automatically, he's mad at me from day one. So the detectives look at Dean's ID card and don't see a resemblance. At all. Dean wasn't considered a suspect. And that should have been the end of the story. But then things started to go sideways. The chief of security wasn't done. Another year later, he called the police again. This time he reached out to a rookie officer, a guy who happened to be the son of his friend, the police chief. And by this point, the senior detective on the case had retired. Suddenly, Dean Gillespie became the prime suspect. This was two and a half years after the crime. The police called Dean. They just kept calling and wanting me to come in. And, um, you know, they wouldn't say what they wanted. And, uh, you know, I just assumed that it was like a ticket, you know, a parking ticket or something that hadn't been paid. And uh, I went down there and and, uh, talked to the guy. He was asking me about where I was and what I was doing two and a half years before that. And I'm like, I don't know what I was doing two weeks ago, much less two and a half years ago. And, um, you know, it just became a hostile environment and, and all that, and I just left, and that was it. And next thing I know, they came to uh, arrest me. That's when five police cars were out in front of my house with guns laid across the hood. I'm sitting on my front porch. I was working on a piece of antique furniture, and I had a little three-inch pocket knife in my hand scraping off some, some uh, shellac. They kept hollering, drop the weapon, and I'm like, I, you know, I don't have a weapon. And they're screaming and hollering, you know, and I'm like, what in the heck is going on here? And, um, yeah, then I'm handcuffed and stuffed and took them through the house, and they're tearing my house apart. Dean had walked into a nightmare, and the nightmare would not end. Dean Gillespie was indicted and convicted on all charges in 1991. A second trial was ordered months later when new physical evidence came to light. This time it was a hung jury, at least at first. The jury came out eight to four for acquittal. The jury deliberated again, and again it was hung. But after a third deliberation, they found Gillespie guilty. They come back out and you just, you know, they say guilty. You're like, what in the heck? In 45 minutes, what just happened? You came out twice, hung, and then 45 minutes after that, you come out with a total conviction. And they were just done. They wanted to go home. So then after that, the next numbers I got out of them was 22 to 56. And I spent 20 of them in prison.
This miscarriage of justice was caused by a sequence of terrible decisions, decisions influenced by motivated reasoning. When the authorities thought they had their guy, they started putting their finger on the scale to prove it. Here's an example. The most damning evidence against Gillespie was the testimony of two eyewitnesses who said he was the guy. They started by picking him out of a lineup, but the rookie detective had made sure Gillespie's photo stood out. My background is yellow in a six-pitcher lineup. The rest of them are blue. Who do you pick? The other guys are, you know, from, from the chest or the waist up, and mine is nothing but my whole face. You know, who do you pick? Eyewitness testimony is almost impossible to overcome, even when it's unreliable. They've convinced the victims that I was the person who did this, even though, now this is the key, even though there's 27 things different about me and the person who did this, and my lawyer went through each one of them, how much more to the point can you get? If you're like me, this just doesn't make sense. How could the same eyewitnesses who described a totally different guy suddenly identify Dean Gillespie as the attacker? Okay, Mark Godsey. I'm a professor of law at the University of Cincinnati. I'm the author of Blind Injustice. Mark Godsey was one of the lawyers involved in the attempt to exonerate Dean Gillespie. He's part of something called the Ohio Innocence Project. They started work after Dean had already been incarcerated for over a decade. And when they began digging into the eyewitness testimony, they were horrified. Remember the situation here. The eyewitnesses had come in two and a half years after the crime. And then that young officer put together a lineup where Gillespie's photo popped out. Why would the officer push so hard in this situation? This was a young detective, and this was his first case, and it was a cold case that had not been solved for several years. And some really respected and experienced detectives had been on the case previously and been unable to solve it. And so, you know, if you're sitting there, you're 26 years old as a new detective, and you can crack this cold case that no one else has been able to solve, then you're a hero. And, you know, so finally a tip comes in, a suspect comes to the forefront. And I think, you know, subconsciously, maybe not even, you know, consciously, he thought, if I can make this fit and I can solve this case and convict this guy, then, then this is a great way to start my career as a detective. The officer really, really wants Gillespie to be guilty. That resolve, that certainty on the part of the detective colored every part of the investigation. So Mark Godsey and his team at the Ohio Innocence Project are convinced that Gillespie has been wrongly convicted. They reached all the way back to the original investigators on the case, the ones who had seen Gillespie's ID card and said, nope, that's not our guy. So they found them, they started talking to them, and they couldn't believe that I was convicted of. They didn't know. They are like, are you kidding me? You know, We could see something was wrong with that from day one. We got the facts from the, uh, the two detectives of all the stuff that should have been in the file. Then, in 2011... December 22nd, 2011, I was released by the federal court. And it was uh, about 7, 7.30 at night. He was released on bond. It was Dean's first taste of freedom in two decades. It was just, it was surreal. You know, all my friends and everybody's there, and you're just like, I just walked out of prison. And it's just, you know, it's like you're floating. You think this story is over. But remember, I said Gillespie was released on bond. That's because the prosecutors appealed the ruling. And then the prosecutors fought our wins 
for many years and it took all the way until 2017 for him to be fully exonerated for all those avenues of appeal for them to be exhausted. Six more years to be exonerated. But Mark Gotze and his team eventually prevailed. Here's Dean. To me, the day that, that, that it actually was real freedom was when I went into the National Registry of exonerees, the 2,076 person to be exonerated in the United States. That's when you know it's done, it's over, you are free and can do whatever you want to do. And what does freedom taste like? Yeah, it tastes like the best pie you ever had times a thousand million. Dean Gillespie is now enjoying his life as a free man. He's an avid fisherman, likes to spend time with his family, and he regularly speaks at events in conjunction with the Ohio Innocence Project. Mark Godsey is a professor of law at the University of Cincinnati and director of the Ohio Innocence Project. He's also the author of Blind Injustice, a former prosecutor exposes the psychology and politics of wrongful convictions. I've put a link to the book in the show notes. You can find those on your device anytime. So what does Dean Gillespie's harrowing tale have to do with popes and priests and sainthood, the stuff we were talking about at the top of the show? The link is the villain of our show. It's called confirmation bias, and it means that we tend to seek out information that supports or confirms what we already believe, and we tend to ignore or downplay information that might contradict us. Sound familiar? This is not a rare bias or an obscure one. It might be more accurate just to say, this is the way our brains work pretty much every day. Confirmation bias can take a variety of forms. When you ask your partner, hey, how do I look in these jeans? You're clearly fishing for positive information, not a strictly unbiased assessment of your appearance. That's confirmation bias. You're looking for information to support what you want to believe, i.e. that you look good. But confirmation bias can lead to terrible error, as we saw in Dean Gillespie's case. The young detective and the prosecutors were so sure he was the bad guy that they ignored all evidence to the contrary. It was a bias that left an innocent man in jail for two decades. I'm Dan Heath, and this is Choiceology, an original podcast by Charles Schwab. It's all about the invisible forces that influence the way we make decisions. And by the way, Schwab has written an article called How to Avoid the Financial Pitfalls of Confirmation Bias. It explains several steps you can take to mitigate confirmation bias in your financial decisions. You can find a link in the show notes. So back to the Catholic Church. Pope Leo X, he realizes that confirmation bias will play a big role in the decisions made about saints. So he comes up with a solution, the devil's advocate. Kenneth Woodward is an expert on saints and how they're made. In the early days of the church... Saints were made by popular acclamation. If people thought they were a saint and had a reputation for sainthood, they would probably be listed, say, in Lyon or Sicily or something. There were thousands of these local saints listed because of the stories of the miracles they did and the extraordinary virtues that they had. 
But as the Catholic Church became more centralized, they eventually wanted to protect the church from saints who don't deserve to be saints, that they really weren't saintly. And so the church started a process where they would inquire into the lives of the candidates. But of course, most of the locals would likely be in favor of sainthood for the candidate. So the church introduced a key figure into the process. That's the devil's advocate, also known as the promoter of the faith. And that's an important point, the promoter of the faith, because this person wasn't supposed to be just an all-purpose critic, slinging mud at anyone for the sake of sport. Rather, the devil's advocate was supposed to be a defender of the faith, the Catholic Church, to protect the church from people who didn't merit the status of sainthood. The devil's advocate would try to poke holes in what was being presented, question some of the testimony given. They loved that back and forth. That back and forth led to many fewer saints. The position of devil's advocate was eventually discontinued, retired in the 1980s by Pope John Paul II. And what happened as a result? Well, listen to this. From 1000 AD to 1978 AD, fewer than 450 men and women were canonized. Under the reign of just one pope, Pope John Paul II, over 480 saints were proclaimed. I still, myself, find it difficult to, to justify getting rid of altogether the devil's advocate. Because now it looks as if that everyone who is involved in the process is bent on a positive outcome. You have to be very self-disciplined to sort of internalize the devil's advocate and say, I'm going to look at this this way, that way, the next way, all right? I'm going to turn every facet of this gym around and let's see if the virtues are there and so forth. By the way, it all worked out for Lawrence Justinian, our candidate from the top of the show who gave up his life of privilege to serve the poor. He was beatified by Pope Clement VII back in 1524 and canonized as a saint by Pope Alexander VIII in 1690 more than 200 years after Justinian's death. He's now known as St. Lawrence, and his feast day is September the 5th. So just to tie a bow on this discussion, we're talking about confirmation bias, and the devil's advocate was a great corrective for that bias. It's exactly the same reason we have defense lawyers in the justice system, to make sure the system considers not just the confirming evidence that the defendant is guilty, but also disconfirming evidence that he's innocent. Obviously, it's not a foolproof system. Dean Gillespie's original defense lawyers utterly failed, but the lawyers from the Innocence Project succeeded. If confirmation bias is such a wicked trap, and it can be, why does it exist? Why would our brains have evolved in a way to permit it? Well, that's where things get interesting. Um, I'm Tali Sherratt. I'm an associate professor of cognitive neuroscience at University College London and author of The Influential Mind. So, in fact, the confirmation bias is a rational thing. It's not irrational. And the reason it's rational is that it makes sense that when you have a strong belief and you encounter an evidence that doesn't really fit that belief, in most cases, that evidence is in fact wrong. So let me give you an example. So if I were to tell you that I saw a pink elephant flying in the sky, then you would immediately assume that I was lying or delusional, as you really should, 
right? Because if you have a strong belief and someone comes and says something that really disconfirms it, then in you know 80% or whatever percent of the cases, they're wrong. However, what it also means is that some of our beliefs could be false or they're very, very subjective. And it's a problem because those beliefs are not going to be, it's very hard to change them when you find evidence that doesn't quite fit with them. So think about what she's saying here. The confirmation bias can be useful. If someone makes an argument that your spouse is a totally worthless human being, it makes sense that you would have some mental armor against that argument because you strongly believe the opposite. That's why you married them. So you'll tend to discount negative information about them and favor positive information. And that's a good thing. You wouldn't want your core beliefs in life to be subject to change on a whim. But of course, that's the problem too, because the detectives and the prosecutors who put away Dean Gillespie had that same mental armor, but they were dead wrong about the belief they were protecting. Now, I want to show you how pervasive this bias is and how easy it is to demonstrate in real time. You're scared? <laughs> you don't be scared. Hi, I'm Hi. Alice. Hi, Alice. Heather, nice, nice to, to meet, meet you. you. How are you? Good. We've you? assembled a group of people for a little experiment with a nod to James Randi, also known as The Amazing Randi. He's a famous magician, and he did the original experiment back in the 1990s. First, we had an astrologer interview these people individually. Um, have you ever, like, had an astrology reading before? Like, do you follow horoscopes? I've not had an astrology reading, and I occasionally read horoscopes. Occasionally read horoscopes. Yeah. And from those interviews, she has prepared some customized readings. Okay, so now I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and they're just agree or disagree questions. So sure. you can go agree or disagree. Okay. Okay. You often get so lost in thoughts that you ignore or forget your surroundings. Uh, agree. Next, we gathered all the people that she interviewed into the same room. Then our astrologer handed out those customized readings. Um, okay, so Alice. David. Tara. Just to give you a feel for this, one of the participants was named Alice, and she had about 12 different comments on her reading. The first one was, you have a great need for other people to like and admire you. Another comment was, at times you have serious doubts as to whether you have made the right decision or done the right thing. So Alice and everyone else have a chance to review their personal readings and then... Okay, so uh, on a scale of one to five, one being the lowest, five being the highest, how do you feel that your personalized reading represents you? So is anyone a one? No. no. Okay, two? Three and a four. I'm a four, four and a half. Four, yeah. four and a half. Yeah, four point eight. Yeah. Four point eight. <laughs> and so five. I think I'm five alive. You're five alive. I might actually be a five. I just didn't want to admit that this is a five, but I think. <laughs> Almost everyone in the group agreed that the reading captured their personality. So, score a victory for astrology. But here's where things get interesting. So uh, what I want you to do now is just to, and we'll pass it this way. So pass your reading over to the person that is to the left of you, and then read that person's horoscope yes. slash oh, reading. This was, I didn't know this was part of it. This is the exact same as mine. It's the same. Almost. That's really not exactly. interesting. 
You see, here's the trick. Every single horoscope was exactly the same. People were reading into it things that made it feel specific to them, even though it was absolutely generic. Remember that line for Alice? At times, you have serious doubts as to whether you have made the right decision or done the right thing. Has there ever been a person who that would not apply to? So the participants wanted to believe, and they found reasons to believe. But here's the thing. If you think, as I do, that astrology is bunk, you would have been looking for reasons to doubt. Or imagine if, instead of a horoscope, this was actually a performance review from a boss who you despise. In that case, we'd be motivated to cherry-pick all the things that don't sound quite right. The point is, thanks to the confirmation bias, we see what we want to see. How do you reduce the influence of confirmation bias? In an ideal world, before you made a major decision, you'd prepare a case for it, and you'd ask your best friend to prepare a case against it, and then you'd let someone you trust adjudicate the matter. Your mom, maybe. Our best bet to combat the confirmation bias in our personal lives might be to say, what evidence would change your mind down the road? Maybe you've got a new love interest that nobody in your family seems to like, but you're convinced he or she is the one. There's no changing your mind right now. But what would change your mind? What could change your mind? It's probably easier to answer that question since you don't think any of those disconfirming factors will actually happen. And maybe, just maybe, having identified those factors, when you encounter one in the future, it might just change your mind. No guarantees. This is a nasty bias we're dealing with. But at least we'll have a fighting chance. You've been listening to Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. We'd love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe there too or anywhere else you listen. It's free, and subscribing means you won't miss an episode. Next time on Choiceology, more hidden psychological forces that may be affecting the way you make decisions about risk and reward, and specifically, how you relate to sharks. I'm Dan Heath. Talk to you next time. All expressions of opinion are subject to change without notice in reaction to shifting market conditions. Data contained herein from third-party providers is obtained from what are considered reliable sources. However, its accuracy, completeness, or reliability cannot be guaranteed.